Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Commonwealth Teaching Podcast. My name is Charlie, and today we are going to be looking at the next passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been journeying through Jesus' sermon now for a long time, and uh, we've come to today what I think is really the climax of Jesus' teaching, and it, it is a teaching that has captured the hearts and the minds of people over the past thousands, a uh, couple thousand years. And it's just really powerful and really unique and really challenging. And so I'm excited to be able to just process that with you today. And hopefully it is something that deeply shapes the way that we live. And before we read our passage today, I just want us to spend a moment reflecting on an experience that I'm sure you've had at some point. I want you to think about a person in your life whom you know well, you like them, you care about them, you enjoy their company, maybe it's a family member or a friend. And one day you log on to Facebook and right there at the top of your feed is a post made by this person. It is about some hot button topic, it is political, it is strongly worded, maybe even a little combative. You had no idea they thought this way and you don't agree with it. Can you recall an experience like this? Now, I don't know about you, but I think for many of us, this sort of experience causes an emotional response. Your blood pressure starts to rise, your ears get hot, you might feel anger towards that person, maybe even a sense of betrayal. You think, how could they believe that? How could they think that or feel that way? Then you begin to attribute all these other viewpoints to them. They probably think this too. You might even begin to question your relationship with them. Do I even know this person? Can I still be their friend? Can I even associate with them anymore? You see, no longer is this person that friend or family member whom you know and love and share all these memories with. They now represent a collection of thoughts and opinions that you are against. Things that you can't stand. Now you might eventually get over this and return to that relationship, but there is at least a moment when that person, because of what they now represent, has become an enemy. And you have this instinct to distance yourselves from them, whether it's by pulling back and shutting off or fighting them in order to shut them down. What is that? Why do we as humans tend to push away or attack people who are different from us? Throughout the course of history, this is always proven to be true, whether it's cultural differences, beliefs, skin color, worldview, political stances, or how we feel about the Super Bowl halftime show. We always want to push away or attack or separate from those who think differently, those who look differently, those who act differently, those who believe differently than us. It seems to be embedded in human nature to distance ourselves from people who are different. And despite all our talk about diversity and inclusion, this does not seem to be getting any better. There was a study done out of uh, Cal Berkeley that shows over 80% of our metropolitan areas in the United States 
are more racially segregated now than they were in 1990. Our political system has become increasingly polarized. Social media disputes have destroyed families and friendships. I'm sure we all know of or maybe even have experienced ourselves relationships that have been devastated because of disputes on social media. We can't seem to get rid of this human tendency to separate from one another. But that brings up a problem. Because when you separate from people who are different from you, those differences don't go away. If anything, they are magnified. When you put distance between yourself and someone else, what happens is the differences are magnified and the similarities or what you have in common are minimized. The very things that you don't like or that make you uncomfortable or that you fear about that person become the only things you see, even if you actually have more in common than you do different. This is why you see that post on Facebook and all of, all of a sudden, everything you love about that person, all the memories you share, the bond you've created over the years, all that is at risk of being thrown out the window because all you can think about is what you now disagree on. And so we perpetuate this downward spiral to more separation, more polarization, more segregation, to the point where we end up making our own enemies. Think about that. We create our own enemies. When we allow our differences to separate us from our fellow human beings, whom we have far more in common with than we do different, we create our own enemies. Well, that brings us to our passage for today, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And a few things I just want you to know or think about before we read this passage. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I believe this passage is the climax of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Everything that we've talked about up to this point has been leading up to this, this little section, and then all the things that we'll talk about after this kind of reinforce and support and build upon what Jesus is saying right here. This little passage contains Jesus's most radical, most challenging teaching, and it arguably has had the greatest impact on the minds and the lives of Christians and non-Christians alike, more than any teaching by any great teacher throughout the course of history. Now, I know that sounds like a, a bold statement, but I'm going to try to unpack that a little bit for you as we go. Just for a moment, let me pray for you, and then we'll dive into our passage. Uh, Father, I just pray for anyone who's listening to this right now, God, that you would clear their hearts and minds of anything that would distract them from what you have to say. I pray that they would be able to hear clearly from you, not from me, but from you and from your word, and that they would be able to take these words of Jesus and allow their hearts and minds and actions and life to be formed and shaped by what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we go, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I want you to imagine this scene. You are a Jewish fisherman, like many of Jesus' followers, and you just pulled into the shore from a day of fishing. You unload your boat and you walk up to the tax collector's booth. Every day you have to either pay the tax collector or give up a portion of your catch from that day. Unfortunately, today was an awful day of fishing and you just don't have enough to pay your taxes. You need all this fish to feed your family and your neighbors and anyone in your community who might be hungry. So you tell the tax collector, I'm sorry, I don't have enough to pay you today. Well, the tax collector gets angry with you. He stands up and he backhand slaps you in front of all the other fishermen and traders. He demands that you pay even more taxes. He says, you give me every single fish you have or you'll have these Roman soldiers to answer to. He can do that. Okay, this happened all the time. We talked about this uh, at our last all-family gathering. If you are a follower of Jesus, what do you do? How do you show love to this tax collector who's treating you in this way? This is why it was so offensive for Jesus to go into the home and share a meal with people like Matthew and like Zacchaeus. How could you associate with someone like that? How could you love someone that does that? Here's another scene for you to imagine. It's the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. You're out for a walk by the lake with your family. It's been a long and hard week of work, and you're finally getting to enjoy your family and enjoy God's creation. Suddenly, you hear someone yelling for you to stop. You turn around and a Roman soldier walks up, throws down his bag at your feet. He says, pick that up and carry it for me. You protest. You say, you know, it's the Sabbath. I'm, I'm just trying to get some time with my family. Can't you just spare me just this once? Just let me be with my family today. He pulls out his sword and he says, do it or you're dead. You're a follower of Jesus. What do you do? How could you possibly show love to this Roman soldier who is threatening your life in front of your family? Now, most people would say, you know, that's crazy. Of course you wouldn't love that person. Here you are. You're minding your own business. In fact, you're trying to love your family. You're trying to care for your neighbors by bringing fish home to your community. But this tax collector, this Roman soldier, they're the ones keeping you from fulfilling your responsibilities as a good spouse, as a good parent, as a good neighbor. 
It would be unfair, it would be irresponsible to drop all of that and show love to this enemy. Yet that is precisely what Jesus calls us to do. This is a radical way of living. And prior to Jesus, no one had ever suggested that we ought to show love to those who hate you, that we ought to show love to those who harm you, that we ought to love those who want to kill you. And since Jesus, no one has ever taught this without referring back to Jesus' teaching as their inspiration from Gandhi to Nelson Mandela to the Reverend Martin Luther King. Gandhi claimed that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount competes on almost equal terms with the Gita, which is the Hindu scriptures, for the domination of my heart. He goes on to say, We conquer the heart of the enemy with truth and love, not violence. Nelson Mandela, who fought apartheid in South Africa and became the first president of the Republic of South Africa, said that I have never met an enemy whom I did not try to turn into a friend. And Dr. King wrote, love for enemies is the key to solving the problems of our world. Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is a practical realist. And our responsibility as Christians is to discover the meaning of this command and seek passionately to live it out. That's Martin Luther King. And the list goes on to all the world's greatest peacemakers and greatest kingdom builders who would point to this little passage as the key to it all. And we have to ask, what kind of kingdom is built this way? Every other kingdom that has ever existed conquers by violence and oppression of enemies. Yet Jesus says his kingdom will spread through sacrificial love towards enemies. You can't live this way and not stand out. That's why Jesus says in in verses 46 and 47, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? That's what the tax collectors do, right? Even they're doing that. And then he says, if you greet or associate with only your own people, what are you doing that's different from anyone else? Even the pagans, which just means non-Jewish people in this context, do that. When you only love those who love you back, or when you only love if you are getting something in return, well, that's no different than anyone else. And Jesus calls us to something much greater much more challenging. Jesus calls us to love those who hate you, to show kindness to those who do you harm, to want the best for those who tear you down, to honor and bless those who insult or offend you, to move towards those who try to create division with you. This is not something that we as humans do naturally. And if Christians lived this way, the world would not know what to do with us. We would be the strangest, most compelling, most disarming, most attractive, and probably the most hated community of people on earth. I quoted Martin Luther King, and and he is someone that 
took this teaching of Jesus seriously. And I love what he said in that quote I read that our responsibility as Christians is to discover the meaning of this command and seek passionately to live it out. There's a a story and there's a picture, you can look it up online, but um, there's a story about Martin Luther King that I think illustrates the way he lived this out uh, so perfectly. And and um, this is, so the, the picture is Martin Luther King is standing on his front lawn with his son. And there's a cross in the front lawn that has been burned. That night, the Ku Klux Klan had come by and they had s- stuck this cross into his front yard and, and lit it on fire. And I just want you to imagine um, what that must feel like, okay, to have this organized group of people, a group of people that includes local politicians, local business leaders, the police officers, and even the police chief, okay, this is a deeply connected and protected group of people. And they regularly assault and harass and kill black people. And they know where you live and you are their number one enemy. Imagine the constant fear and anger that you might be feeling. Just four years before this, King's home was bombed with with his family inside. The whole front of the house was blown off and thankfully, No one was injured, but imagine putting your children to bed every night, not knowing if this would be the night when they attack again. So back to this this image, King walks out of his home and and he's got his his Sunday suit on and, and he's got his children and his wife and they come out of the home and all the neighbors and the news stations are gathered around to hear what he will say. And he bends over and pulls this cross out of the ground. And he stands there holding this image in his hands, an image that he knows to be representative of Jesus's greatest act of love, Jesus's greatest act of subversive, nonviolent resistance to evil and hate. But an image that has been turned into an image of hate and division and fear. He holds this cross in his hands And he begins to pray. He prays that God would show favor and bless the people who did this. Why would he do that? Why would he pray a blessing over those who hate and those who threaten to harm him and his family? Well, listen to what he writes in one of his letters from the Birmingham jail. Uh, Martin Luther King writes, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you cannot murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. 
Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. To close here, I just want to share with you three things that I think are essential if we are to truly love our enemies. And, and I know that we could go on and on about this and we could probably unpack this for the rest of our lives and never cover everything, but this is the best I can do. I'm, I'm just gonna cover three things uh, that I think are essential if we wanna step into Jesus's call to love our enemies. And the first thing is that loving your enemy requires you to be near to the heart of God. Understand this, you are never reflecting the heart of the Father more than when you love those who hate you, than when you bless those who do you harm. This is why Jesus says right here in verse 45, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is what God's children do because this is what God does. If we want to look like our Father in heaven, the best way we do that is by loving our enemies. This is what God did for us when we turned against him. He loved us and never stopped loving us. And Jesus concludes this portion of the Sermon on the Mount with a climactic statement. In, in verse 48, he says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, once again, we could spend many, many conversations processing this and, and talking through this one line alone. But briefly, um, how to understand this, the Greek word here behind perfect is teleos, teleos, and the root of that is telos, okay, which doesn't mean perfect as much as, as it means to be fully formed or to be mature. Telos means the end destination or the goal or the direction that we are going. So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you, you need to become who you were made to be. Loving your enemy is a sign that we are living into our God-given identity as image bearers of the Father, that we are reflecting who God is to the world. That is what we were put here to do. What we were created to do is to reflect God to the world. And we never do that more than when we're loving our enemy. It is a sign that we have grown in our spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. But in order to do, to do that, we must first be near to his heart, which is why Jesus, if you read on in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to follow up this line with a, a series of spiritual habits or practices of righteousness, as Jesus calls them. And, and these are things that draw us into the presence of God and allow us to be shaped and formed by him. So we're going to process that in future episodes, what that looks like. But loving your enemy requires you to be near to the heart of God. That's number one. Number two, loving your enemy requires you to see what could be. I think this is what, uh, why Martin Luther King stood out among so many others, is he was able to treat his enemies with love because he had a clear vision in his mind for what the world could become. And he spoke about that vision. He could imagine a world where those hateful, racist men who burned that cross, who bombed his home, who threatened his family, he could imagine a world in which they were his friends. So he was able to love them as such. 
And if you read through the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, it is constantly pointing us toward the future vision of the resurrection and the new creation. God's greatest promise is that all things would be renewed and the world would become what he intended for it to be, filled with love and abundance, peace and goodness. And we are invited to live like this is already our reality. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. To live like the kingdom has come. To live like heaven has come to earth. Because it has in Jesus. And it continues to come even if the full effects have not taken place. And we struggle with living this way when we lose sight of the vision that God has given us. Or I think what what is the case for many of us is that our vision for what God is doing in the world is too small. We cannot love our enemies if we cannot see what God is doing in the world. Loving our enemies requires you to see what could be. And finally, loving your enemies requires you to bear your cross. That's number three. Many people who take Jesus' teaching seriously end up as martyrs. From almost all his disciples to many in the early church, all the way to Martin Luther King. When we live in the way of Jesus, we will be attractive to many. We will be a blessing to many, but some people will hate you for it. Now, we might not end up as martyrs, but at the very least, living and loving like Jesus will require constant sacrifice and humility. At the very least, loving your enemy means when someone inconveniences you, you treat them with patience and respect. Loving your enemy means when someone disagrees with you, you hold more tightly to what you have in common. Loving your enemy means that when someone insults you, you speak well of them. Loving your enemy means when someone harms you, you bless them. When someone sees you as less, you see them as an image bearer of God with value and worth. Loving your enemy means when someone hates you, you learn to love them. Loving your enemy means when someone aims to kill you, you pray that they will find true and abundant life. We live lives of sacrifice and humility because that is what Jesus did for us. And we can only do it if we are constantly turning back towards him. So so what I invite you to do as we close here is just go before Jesus and imagine the sacrifice, the loving sacrifice that he, he is for you and how he gave it all so that you would know him that you would experience his love, that you would be in God's presence, and that you'd be able to take part in the loving and reconciling work that he is doing in this world. So it starts by realizing that you were the enemy that Jesus loved. And now he is inviting you to live in this world as someone who loves everyone, including those who are against you and those who are are hateful towards you and those that would harm you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. 
We thank you that when we turned away from you, when we rebelled against you, when we uh, did so much damage to this beautiful and amazing world that you created and shared with us, we thank you that you never stopped loving us, that you never stopped pursuing us, that you never stopped giving yourself to us. And we pray that in every relationship, and with every stranger and with everyone we interact with, that we would love them in that way. That we'd be, we'd be able to see them for who they were made to be, that they are an image bearer of God with value and worth, and we are called to honor and love them with everything that we have. I pray that we would be constantly reminded that the way that we worship you and the way that we love you is by loving your image bearers. As Jesus said, the things that we do to those in prison and those on our street and those at our work and those wherever we encounter them, the things that we do to them, we do to him. Pray that we take the teachings of Jesus seriously and that we would be people that reflect the radical and sacrificial love of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.